as we mentioned and as you can see, that today is a uh, special day and that's why we have some extra extra kasha, that's right, and extra, <laughs> extra delicacies, first of all, to enjoy. But today, as we mentioned, is the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism. When we talk about the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism, so we'll have this as a little bit of a farbring, and a farbring means a get-together which we can chat and talk about and reflect on the importance of the day and what it means in our life. A refl- uh, as the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism, it is the day that in Tav Kuf Nun Tes, which I think corresponds to 1792, it was the time when the first Chabad Rebbe was released from prison, from Tsarist prison, and his charges, and it actually works and segues well in today's class as well, which we're going to talk about the land of Israel, which one of his uh, main uh, complaints or this, what was against him was that he was sending money to the Hasidim in Israel. At that time, Israel was under the Turkish Empire, and the Tsar was at odds with the Turkish Empire. And because of that, they, that was the initial concept of the arrest. He was actually arrested in what they would call the Black Wagon, which was only reserved for severe criminals. And his entire journey to prison and being in prison was one of a spectacular, miraculous event to the extent that even his arrest to begin with, when they came to arrest him the first time, it was the middle of Sukkot, and he was actually davening. And when they came to arrest him, he was in the middle of davening, and the people that came to arrest him were so in awe of his prayer, they just left in amazement. He heard that they were there, so when he finished davening, he went out to the backyard, let's say, to escape. However, he had then called over a chassid, whose name was Rabbi Shmuel Munkis, and he asked Rabbi Shmuel Munkis, what does he think? Should he allow himself to be arrested or should he run away? And Rabbi Shmuel Munkis looked at him and said as follows. He says, if you're a chassid, I'm sorry, he said, if you're a rebbe, if you're a real deal, then no bullet's going to harm you. And if you're not the real deal, you're just a charlatan, then you deserve it. <laughs> so either way, <laughs> you got it. So, and he allowed. Now the question that some ask, what do you mean? There are many great people that had uh, terrible things happen to them in their life, right? But it seemed like, as we know, that the very fact that he asked a chassid, he knew that this was not just a simple slander because he was sending money to Eretz Yisrael. This was, as we know, this was a terrible decree against the concept of teaching the mystical teachings of the Torah. And it wasn't, and it had to come in the way of a slander of the opponents of chassidus to do it, but the concept was that whatever exists in this world is a reflection of the world above. And by him going into prison and being there for 53 days, in fact, the Tanya, his magnum opus, had 53 chapters. And we realized that we saw that the difference between the teachings of Hasidus, the way before he was arrested and after, were completely different because now he, so to speak, was able to break through that opportunity and now teach the mystical concepts of the Torah on a greater level. The concept is that we find, in general, that what we can learn from this is, is a, something called kasis that when a person is sometimes forced into a situation, there are two ways that we can look at it. We can either capitulate, or we can utilize and say, you know what, because I'm forced into the situation, you then become to ingenuity. What's they say? What's the greatest way of invention is? By force. Necessity. Necessity is the greatest force of invention, right? Is the greatest method of invention. And that's exactly what happened. It was Cussis. He was, so to speak, crushed. He had no other opportunity, and therefore he had to see what are we going to do from it. And keeping with the mandate that it was given of the Maggot of Mizrich, 
and continuing the mandate of the Baal Shem Tov, which was the teachings of Hasidus should be spread to the furthest and greatest place possible, that was the mandate of the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe, this is not the first time that he, so to speak, took upon himself the shoulders of the teaching and disseminating the concepts of Hasidus, even during the lifetime of the Magad of Mizrich, when the Magad of Mizrich, once he was walking in the once the Alter Rebbe was walking on the road with a friend of his, whose name was Rapinchas Karitzer, and they found a teaching, a Kabbalistic page on the floor next to the garbage, and Rapinchas Karitzer was very upset. Look, there are people that don't know how to treat this holy item to the extent that it's in the garbage. This is terrible. We can't allow these great teachings to be given to the masses because they don't know how to treat it. And the Alter Rebbe then gave the very famous parable that imagine if you have a king who has an only child and that only child becomes deathly ill and all doctors in the world don't know what to do with that don't know and don't have a method to be able to treat that child. And finally one doctor comes along and says have something. One doctor comes along and says uh, I found a treatment and the treatment is that if you take the crown jewel of the king and you crush it and you grind it and you liquefy it and your little bit goes into the king's into the prince's mouth that can save the child do you think the king won't try it for sure the king will try it i it is crown jewel i it's, it's it, and he's going to crush it and liquefy it but anything to save the prince and the same idea is the concept of hasidism in today's day and age Hasidism today is day and age is so important because it's saving the prince, the Jewish people. If not for Hasidism, as you can ask anybody in the previous generations, Judaism wouldn't be where it is today. Because it was the energy, it was the gas, it was the diesel, whatever you want to call it, keeping the Jewish people going. And that's why it was important. And the Alter Rebbe, by giving that parable, the Magad of Mizrich told him he saved the teachings of Hasidim from the, so to speak, upsetness of the other people that were there. So today we celebrate this breakthrough, and that's why it's called the, um, the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism, which it, Rosh Hashanah being the new year gives us the life, the vitality, the ability to be able to teach and learn and be, become better and better people because of this great day. Which brings us and segues, as we mentioned, into our class today. So as we, today we're going to, where are we up to here? As we go into today's class, we're now at the third lesson of Outsmarting Anti-Semitism, second to the last class. Next week is Hanukkah, and we're still going to have a class with the menorah and with some latkes and the final class on this series. So, as you know, anti-Semitism in its modern form today, even though we have much of the generic anti-Semitism, historically anti-Semitism had many different forms and shapes. But today we have an, we're going to discuss a different form of anti-Semitism. And the form of anti-Semitism in today's most modern era, what we find mostly anti-Semitism today, is a form of what we call anti-Israel, anti-the Jewish land. And that is today the modern type of anti-Semitism. While unfortunately anti-Semites are not really particular when they have, want to hate people, and how they want to hate. They'll also take all kinds of anti-Semitism, but this anti-Semitism is unique as we're going to outline today. And this is unique because A, it threatens the safety and security of millions of people that live in the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael. It is against the basis of what the land of Israel and the right of the Jewish people. But even more so, it's unique in who the haters are, as we're going to explain. The reality is that 
generally the world does not tolerate regular anti-Semitism or the old historic type of anti-Semitism. But unfortunately, there's a little bit of anti-Semitism which is, quote-unquote, more tolerated or more accepted, and that is what we call anti-Israel. And here's just a little bit of a video that gives us a little overview as we can see the anti-Israel bias in the United Nations. On the eastern shore of Manhattan Island, the United Nations headquarters rises from a row of colored flags that represent a multitude of nations. Across the avenue, the Isaiah Wall proclaims a Jewish prophet's vision of universal peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The UN's mission is precisely that, to resolve armed conflicts and to foster global harmony. But inside the august chambers of the United Nations, founded in 1945 as a response to a war-ravaged world desperate for coexistence, Isaiah could have easily found himself the target of virulent condemnation had he survived into modern times. Isaiah lived in ancient Israel that for over a millennia included the territories that the UN considers illegally occupied by today's Jewish state. The Temple Mount that lies at the heart of Isaiah's prophecy is no longer considered by the UN to be the heritage or possession of the Jewish people. Indeed, the tiny country that Isaiah called home has become the focus of the majority of the UN's denunciations and has inspired more censure than all of today's tyrants put together. Iran, North Korea, and other brutal regimes systematically kill their citizens or deny them the most basic of human rights. Israel's northern neighbor, Syria, has murdered tens of thousands of innocent civilians. Apparently, however, that isn't very important in the eyes of the UN General Assembly and Security Council, who continually pass one-sided resolutions that single out and condemn Israel. An overwhelmingly powerful bloc led by the Arab nations promotes a narrow and slanderous agenda meant to isolate Israel. This agenda has met little resistance. The UN's General Assembly votes on 70 to 100 resolutions annually. 15 to 20 of these regularly express disapproval of Israel. From 2016 until 2020, the Assembly adopted 122 resolutions criticizing various countries. 91 of these targeted Israel. That's 75% of all country-specific resolutions. And while three-quarters of this global forum's written rage lambastes the Jewish state, precious few of the most repressive or blood-soaked regimes on earth have received even a single rebuke. Emergency special sessions of the Assembly are rare. During the last 40 years, they've been convened for one purpose only, to condemn Israel. The Assembly's embrace of a terrorist entity has been equally astounding. In October 1974, 14 years before the Palestinian Liberation Organization even nominally forced war terrorism, the Assembly voted to invite a PLO spokesman to take part in its deliberations. This was the first time that anyone who was neither a government representative 
in order ahead of a quasi-state was granted such a privilege. The following year, the Assembly awarded the PLO permanent representative status. A few months later, the UN infamously approved Resolution 3379, branding Zionism as a form of racism. At the time, Israel's UN ambassador, Chaim Herzog, told his fellow delegates that Hitler would have felt at home listening to the UN debate on the measure. For us, the Jewish people, this is no more than a piece of paper, and we shall treat it as such. Since the 1993 Oslo Accords, hundreds of Israelis have been killed and thousands injured by Palestinian terror attacks. During the same period, the UN passed dozens of resolutions deploring Israel, but not one against the terror attacks. Since the 2006 creation of the UN's Human Rights Council, most of the world's human rights abusers have suffered nary a mild rebuke. Israel, on the other hand, is chastised as often as all of the rest of the countries combined, and in terms more condemnatory. At the Council's every meeting, a topic billed as, quote, human rights situation in Palestine and other occupied Arab territories is raised as a separate agenda item, while the remaining totality of mankind constitutes a single other point on the agenda. From 2006 to May 2021, Israel was condemned in no less than 94 Human Rights Council resolutions. During the same period, Syria was condemned 36 times, North Korea 14 times, and China has been spared condemnation altogether. Even within the walls of the UN, the absurdity of its anti-Israel bias is fleetingly, partially acknowledged. In September 2006, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan conceded. Supporters of Israel feel that it is harshly judged by standards that are not applied to its enemies. And too often this is true, particularly in some UN bodies. In August 2013, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon reflected on Israel's treatment of the UN. In December 2016, he told the UN Security Council, A disproportionate volume of resolutions, reports, and conferences criticizing Israel. One of the more telling comments came inadvertently in November 2013, when a UN interpreter failed to silence her microphone as she addressed her colleague. I mean, I think when you have five statements, not five, but like a total of ten resolutions on Israel and Palestine, there's got to be something, something to call, huh? I mean, I know it's, yes, yes, it's right, but it's not people. There's other really bad happening when he says anything. But the other stuff. Apologies. <laughs> okay, I understand there was a problem with interpretation. Well, can't take it back. Israel is not larger than 8,019 square miles in total. It is the Middle East's only functioning democracy and champion of human rights. It is a world provider of humanitarian disaster relief and medical, agricultural, ecological, scientific technological, and security innovations. But when seen through the lens of historical UN bias, the overwhelming majority of all the world's evils 
and all of the world's ills belong to the tiny Jewish homeland in which Isaiah spoke his vision of swords being beaten into plowshares. In the following quote, you can see in text number one today, page 84, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs puts this new reality into historical perspective, and he says as follows. Anti-Semitism is not an ideology, a coherent set of beliefs. It is, in fact, an endless stream of contradictions. The best way of understanding it is to see it as a virus. Viruses attack the human body, but the body itself has an immediately, immensely sophisticated defense the human immune system. How then do viruses survive and flourish? By mutating. Anti-Semitism mutates, and in so doing defeats the immune system set up by the cultures to protect themselves against hatred. Most people at most time feel a residual guilt at hating the innocent. Therefore, anti-Semitism has always had to find legitimization in the most prestigious source of authority at any given time. In the first centuries of the Common Era, and again in the Middle Ages, there was religion. That's why Judophobia took the form of religious doctrine. In the 19th century, religious had lost prestige and the supreme authority was now science. Racial anti-Semitism was duly based on two pseudoscience, social Darwinism, the idea in society as nature the strong survive by eliminating the weak in the so-called scientific study of race. By the late 20th century, science has lost its prestige, having given the power to destroy life on earth. Today, the supreme source of legitimacy is human rights. That is why the Jews, or the Jewish state, are accused of five primal sins against human rights, racism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, attempted genocide, and crimes against humanity. And as you can see in figure 3.1, the mutating virus, that first you see what the legitimacy was always about religion. And early on in the common era, what did they try to do? In the ancient world, it was all about religion, and therefore, what was the first thing? The humans, everybody made blamed whether it was the Christians blamed it on the Jews for killing their uh, Messiah, or was the Muslims for killing their prophet, it was always the Jews were rejected and killed on the basis and on the notion of religion. As we moved on into the 19th century, where all of a sudden religious, religion declined, and the importance of science took the space, so all of a sudden it was called science. And the problem was an anti-Semitism mutated, mutated in the form, and the authority of science, or more accurately, in the pseudosciences, and saying the Jews were either against science or they were manipulating the science, whether it was in Stalin that he blamed the doctors for killing the Jews or the Jews poisoning the waters and the plagues. It was always using some type of scientific, and that was the way they created in the, um, the concept of anti-Semitism. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, all of a sudden human rights became the preeminent authority, at least in the progressive liberal circles, and therefore, anti-Semitism now looks for legitimacy from that source. And when an anti-Semite wants to fire up people, because who cares about human rights, against Jews, what's the first thing they say? The Jewish people are violating human rights in an apartheid state, and all that type of things that they go on to say. Well, I think the problem today is more that the people in Israel are against Israel. So we're about to say that. So the problem, to be sure, and this is a very important underlining, we're not here saying that Israel doesn't do anything wrong from a political perspective. Now, we're not here to justify everything that Israel's policies and defending Israel's policies. But we're here to talk about, and what we're talking about, and even, let's even take it a step further. If you look in figure 3.2, 
Most people who are pro-Israel in the United States, we're not going to go into Israel yet, but most people who are pro-Israel, even in the United States, are, are, are critical of Israel's policies. I, for myself, I'm pro-Israel. I don't agree with most of its policies. Or maybe many of its policies, depending on the government, right? It's like every other political, but that's not what these people are arguing. What the anti-Semites are saying is not that they're against Israel's policies per se. They're against the fact that, A, as we're going to see what their arguments are, but the concept of, as we find in today, human rights, for example, that Israel's an apartheid state. It's the furthest thing ever from the truth. Oh, yeah, we're going to get to a moment, though. Who are the people that, uh, that what, what the problem is and why the problem gets even worse? And we're going to get to that in a moment. So how do we know and how do we differentiate if we're talking about the policies or we're talking about the anti-Semite part of the anti-Israel? And that's where it can get very confusing. And the question is, how does somebody determine the criticism of Israel or the criticism that's motivated by anti-Semitism? And one of the ways of formulas of seeing the difference is going back and looking back by anti-Semites in the past. And one anti-Semite that we mentioned last week was the Emperor Hadrian who ruled in 117 and 138 CE. And this tyrant was a brutal tyrant against the Jews who just looked to kill Jews just for his own desire. But one of the things that he tried to do to enact and weaken Judaism was to not allow the Jews to practice Judaism. So there was one fellow who decided he's going to speak to power and speak up against Hadrian for what he's doing. And he sent the letter to Hadrian as follows, about his double standard. Text number two on page 88. I, Mictarum, wrote to Emperor Hadrian, if it is circumcision that you hate, Arabian tribes also circumcise. If it is Shabbat observance that you despise, the Kuthans similarly observe Shabbat. Clearly then, it's not Shabbat you have a problem with. It's not circumcision you have a problem with. You have a problem with the Jews. Their God will exact punishment on you. So Hadrian tried to justify to his people the reason why he was killing so many Jews. It was because they have their own set of rules. They have their own way of doing things and all that stuff. And over here, this guy who spoke to power said, listen here, what do you have a problem with them? Circumcision? The Arabs do it too. Why are you not killing them? What do you have a problem with? Keeping Shabbat? The Kuthim. Who were the Kuthim? They were the Samarians. And many people say who they came from Egypt when Sancherva mixed up the world. And they came there. They were not believers in, um, in the actual Torah or even in the oral Torah. They actually, according to some, they were doing idolatry in the mountains. But one of the things that they believed in was that they arrest. So they told Hadrian, if this is your problem, why are you not killing them? So the problem that you have, the double standard, is because you hate the Jews. Now, I'm sure Hadrian wasn't too happy when he got this letter. And the Medrash continues that when he got this letter, he actually was looking to kill the guy that sent the letter, but he had no way to find him. In the modern context of this concept of what Hadrian did, these same ideas of these organizations or people who are accusing Israel for human rights violations are consistently giving a pass to any other country. You don't hear them about Rwanda, you don't hear them about China, you don't hear them about North Korea, you don't hear them about any other country. Not only that, them in their own country are violating the greatest human rights, whether it's Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, you name any stand. Russia. They're the biggest perpetrators of human rights, and who are they screaming about human rights? About Israel. So the double standard is very clear. 
In modern times, Nathan Sharansky, who was the chair of Yad Vashem at the time, he said, he developed this 3D test, he said. If you want to distinguish between a legitimate complaint against Israel, or if it's anti-Semitism, there's three Ds. He says, text number three. And I believe that we can apply a simple test. I call it a 3D test to help distinguish legitimate criticism of Israel from anti-Semitism. And he puts it this way. The first D is a test of demonization. When the Jewish state is being demonized, when Israel's actions are blown out of sensible proportion, when comparisons are made between Israelis and Nazis and between Palestinian refugee camps and Auschwitz, this is anti-Semitism. No legitimate criticism of Israel. You want to say they're doing something wrong, say, but don't all of a sudden say they're Nazis. And don't compare it to Auschwitz. The second D is the test of the double standard. When criticism of Israel is applied selectively, when Israel is singled out by the United Nations for human rights abuses, while the behavior of known and major abuses such as China, Iran, Cuba, Syria is ignored, when Israel's Magen David Edom alone among the world ambulance servants is denied admission to the International Red Cross, that's anti-Semitism. That's not human rights violation. That's anti-Semitism. That's not disagreeing with your policies. And the third D is delegitimization. When Israel's fundamental right to exist is denied, among all the people of the world, this too is anti-Semitism. I don't know if you remember one of the big things that the Israeli government for years, and one of the reasons why, thankfully, many of the peace treaties didn't go through and giving away half of Jerusalem, three-quarters of it, was one of the things that Israel requested was that in the Palestinians should just agree that Israel has the right to exist. And nobody in the world, and those people saying that they should have the right to exist. So what we see over here is that these people, it's not just disagreeing with the policies of Israel. It's demonizing, delegitimization, and double standard. So now that we know what this means, what is the anti-Semite today looking at? We're not talking about a person who disagrees with politics. We're talking about the anti-Semite today who uses Israel as his platform to be an anti-Semite. The question is, what can we do about it? So obviously, one thing is support organizations that help advance Israel's interests. There are many organizations that help educate and support the people in Israel, the interests of Israel abroad, or to be able to lobby and do different things to be able to do those, support those things of Israel. Another thing, as we mentioned, was engage in spiritual endeavors that help Israel. As we mentioned in our first class, whether it's saying learning extra, putting on tefillin, and doing mitzvahs. And if I may add that today's class, we wanted to say that it is in memory of Eliyahu K, a young boy that was just recently murdered just for being a Jew on his way to the Kotel to pray just two days ago. So may his memory be a blessing for all of us in today's class that's dedicated to talking about Israel should be especially in his memory. South Af- originally South African and made Aliyah, Chabad boy actually as well. But what is our, so therefore our focus today is on this unique part of the problem, which is, whoops, what just happened here? Sorry about that. This unique part of the problem of how, what do we deal with it and how do we deal with it? But there's even a bigger problem. And as Ayal was pointing to before, with this form of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is bad enough as it is. The biggest problem of anti-Semitism is 
when you have Jews that join forces with the anti-Semites. In a regular case of anti-Semitism, most cases, you're not going to have your average Jew, regardless of how liberal and secular they may be, and how much they hate Judaism, they're not going to go be breaking windows of shuls and killing Jews. Generally, that's not what happens. But all of a sudden, we have a new form of anti-Semitism. Particularly, young Jews have found it necessary to demonize and to be able to go along with the haters. And too many Jews demonize Israel, treat it with the same double standard as the anti-Semites do, in looking to, de- de- to delegitimize the existence, and I'm not talking about policies of the government, to delegitimize the existence of the gay state of Israel. And the reason why this is so troubling is, number one, what it does is, it's joining forces with the haters. And number two, it's even legitimizing. It's giving them more strength because they're coming along and saying, I'm not an anti-Semite. You see, I have a Jew with me. And this is what happens. When all of a sudden Jews like this come along and they're associating with anti-Israel, anti-Semitism, what it does is it weakens the anti-Semitism in a real way. Why is this happening? And ha- I'm sorry, strengthens anti-Semitism and, and, uh, and why is this happening and what can we do to prevent this? So, we're going to look at it as we mentioned last time and especially now with Hanukkah coming up. I think if we look at this type of anti-Semitism we can split these two types of anti-Semitism into historically two different kinds of anti-Semitism. A Haman anti-Semitism and a Hanukkah anti-Semitism. Antiochus, who was the king of Hanukkah. What's a Haman anti-Semitism? What did Haman want to do? Annihilate the Jews. Jews. He couldn't care about their practices. Of course, he uses as an excuse. He came over to the king and said, you know what? Because they have different laws, therefore we got to kill them. But he wanted to kill the body of the Jew. It is for that reason, interestingly enough, and I'll get to it in a moment, one of the things that we do on Purim is a mitzvah, we have an obligation to make a feast on Purim. On Hanukkah, there's no obligation to have a feast. There's a custom to eat latkes, a custom to have donuts, but the obligation is to give thanks and praise to God. What's the difference? Because when it came to Purim, Haman was interested in destroying the body of the Jews, kill all the Jews, God forbid, in one day. That's Haman anti-Semitism. To be able to get Jews to join such a type of anti-Semitism, it's very difficult. To be able to say to kill other Jews, no Jew is going to join such a type of thing. It's evil, it looks evil, it stinks like evil, it speaks evil. There's no color coding of it. When it comes to all of a sudden the Hanukkah anti-Semitism, Antiochus didn't say, I want to kill the Jews. Don't keep Shabbat. Don't study Torah. Don't do circumcision. Don't do Rosh Chodesh. Don't do the holidays. He cherry-picked certain, ho- certain laws. What was he doing? In the words of the Viala Nisim, he was telling the Jewish people, he wanted the Jewish people to forget that it's God's Torah. He wanted to Hellenize the Jewish people. He wanted to make them intellectuals. He wanted to make them smart intellectuals they're progressives. He wanted to bring them up with the times, make gyms on the side of Jerusalem, go into sports, being part of the Olympics, and all the wonderful things. In fact, the Hellenists believed that maybe they were saving Judaism because they were rediscovering it. They were reforming it. They were making it more modern with the times. 
Antiochus wasn't interested in, so to speak, destroying the body of the Jew. He was interested in destroying the soul of the Jew. When Antiochus and his friends all of a sudden went to war against the Jews, many Jews sided with Antiochus. Why? He didn't make them become Greeks. He didn't say you have to renounce your Judaism. He said, you know, the things that don't make sense because it's not intellectual, don't do it because God told you to do it. Only do it if it makes sense. So be a Jew, but be a more updated Jew. So a Jew didn't feel guilty about renouncing their Judaism. Number two, they were convinced, persuaded, or thought in their Hellenistic type of way of thinking that Judaism is old-fashioned, it's going to die out, and the only way that we can keep Judaism alive is by Hellenizing, is by changing it, is by doing things because it makes sense, because it looks beautiful, or being like the Greeks. we got to survive amongst the Greek empire. Let's be more like them. Not only that, the Greeks were philosophers. They were thinkers. If we're going to be like the Greeks, if we're going to start saying, I'm doing Judaism not because God told me to do, because it makes sense, because I understand it, and start giving you all intellectual rationale, you feel like an intelligent person. It made them feel good about it. So to these Jews, it was completely irrelevant that it so happened to be that it was only the Jews that Antiochus imposed this on. Antiochus didn't go to any other nation in his empire. He was the ruler of the world at the time. The greatest governor, Greek emperor. He didn't try anybody else to persuading them. Because what did Antiochus tell them? I don't want you dead. I don't want you to give up all your Judaism. I just want you to become different. I want you to just shift policy, so to speak. So he had more sympathizers. And this is the essence of Antiochus and anti-Semitism. And historically, anytime we have this type of anti-Semitism, all of a sudden, more Jews gravitate to it. Why? Because they don't realize that this is pure anti-Semitism. They don't realize that they're being self-destructive. They don't realize that this is because at the same time, they can demonize the state of Israel, so to speak, and say, I'm, I'm a Jew. But what Israel is doing and they don't realize where it's coming from because it doesn't feel like anti-Semitism. It's like a sophisticated worldview with these arguments. And therefore, the Jew who joins them doesn't feel like he's going against his people. Unfortunately, he feels like he's helping his people. So if, if, you, if you come in to um, be... And you know the guy's anti-Semitic. But then he starts to talk about Israel to make his anti-Semitism you know, more acceptable. It's up to you to say, not get involved. So we're going to talk... Even if you don't... Even if you so don't we're going to talk about how we're going to counter it. So we're going to get to how we're going to counter it. So let's... Now we're identifying the problem, then we'll get, get to the issue. Text number four. Hanukkah anti-Semitism doesn't demand dead or expel Jews. At least not at first. Instead, it demands the destruction of Jewish civilization. This process requires not dead Jews, but Jews who are willing to give up whatever specific aspect of Jewish civilization is deemed to be uncool. Of course, Judaism has always been uncool, which is why cool people find it so threatening. 
and why Jews are so willing to become cool are absolutely necessary to Hanukkah-style anti-Semitism. In the days of Antiochus, this type of anti-Semitism needed the boys who voluntarily underwent painful genital surgery to prevent the Jews who weren't, that Jews weren't the problem, just the barbarity of Jewish law. Hanukkah-style anti-Semitism always promises Jews the kind of nobility offering them an opportunity to cleanse themselves of whatever that people around them happen to find revolting, the Jewish trait designated as repulsive, vary by country and time period, but they invariably contradict the specific values that the surrounding culture has embraced as universal. Thanks to Judaism's inherent uncoolness, there will never be a shortage of Jews willing to comply. And therefore we find, let's go back, in some of these progressive circles talking about anti-Israel, especially on college campuses, young Jews look at the West as this imperialistic type of nation, an oppressive force who looks to demonize and force its opinions and disadvantage indigenous people and racial minorities, and therefore Israel, by extension, who is created by the Balfour Declaration, is the ultimate expression of this imperialistic type of racist ideology. So then you might ask, what about the right to a statehood? The answer, well, one second. Why can't we cannot have a Jewish right at the expense of the Palestinian rights? And therefore, what about the Jewish people are not a nation of deserving of a state? That's their argument. We don't have to go into the details of how wrong this philosophy is, but we'll look at something else. The haters of Israel, and this is where the underscoring is, and this is where it becomes so fine-lined. They don't say, I don't hate Judaism. My best friends are Jewish. I'm Jewish. I just hate Israel. And I hate Israel because it's robbing the indigenous Palestinians from land. Even though the Palestinians were never there, and even though historically it doesn't make sense, and all the other reasons that, but that doesn't. And all the other countries are right. And all the other countries around them won't take them in. And also where they were initially in Jordan, and all the other things that they were, but that doesn't matter to them. But as long as the problem is, I'm saying without even getting into the technicalities of it, even answering the nonsense behind it, is that there's no logic. That the moment you buy into this human right progressive type of belief, it, there's nothing that's going to explain it. And we heard the tune before, and what is this? This is the anti-Yachas anti-Semitism. This is that type of Hanukkah anti-Semitism. And all of a sudden, they don't realize that by teaming up and marching together with the Palestinians or going into the United Nations together with the Palestinians or advancing Palestinian causes or making BDS or all the other stuff, what they are in essence doing is hurting and this is the biggest form of anti-Semitism that can be possible. And while they're screaming at the same time, I can't be anti-Semitic, some of my most vocal supporters are Jews. So if you go to the BDS or any of these organizations, they're going to say, whoa, we're supported by Jews. And this is all very painful because there's a double standard here. And we have Arab in the government. But the question is now, and most importantly, what can we do to stop Jews from joining the ranks of these anti-Semites? What can we do to be able to change this type of thinking, this model of thinking, this belief? So our question is, what is, so let's, where do we go to now? So let's talk about Israel for a moment. The land of Israel. What is the claim? What's the Jewish claim? 
that the land of Israel is ours. We mentioned education. So let's talk about education a moment. Anybody here, what's the claim that the land of Israel is ours? We have a deed for it. We have a deed for it. We mentioned yeah, a few weeks ago in the uh, Chumash. Anything else? Oh, well, it was a couple of thousand years ago. Right. We were there. Okay. And we're there for a long time. So let's go through three of the most basic claims today that people say, most commonly claimed, and then we'll go to why they people... First of all, we, get, we got it because nobody wanted us, so this was there. Okay, yeah, here, so let's go to the common arguments. We're just going to go through three of them. Common arguments, number one is the international law. Let's talk about now, current. One argument to justify the right of Israel is very simple. Following the defeat of World War I, where the, Armenian, where the Ottoman Empire that controlled the uh, land of Israel was dissolved. So in 1917, there was the Balfour Declaration, which was by the British government, which His Majesty's government found view, found favor with the concept of establishing Palestine as a national home for the Jewish people. That was initially. Then eventually the British mandate of in the League of Nations in 1947, which was before the, I'm sorry, the League of Nations in 1922, under the mandate said that they have to create a provisional area for the land of Israel, which was the British mandate for Palestine. And finally, in 1947, the United Nations approved a partition plan for the land of Israel, dividing into two states, one Jewish and one Arab, and the Jewish community of Israel accepted that compromise, and the state of Israel was proclaimed an official British um, end of the British mandate on May 14th of 1948. So that's international law, that's the first argument the land of Israel, legitimately, legally, according to the United Nations, which continues to condemn it, said that the land of Israel is ours. Jewish survival is another answer that's given. After the Holocaust, after we saw what happened during the Holocaust, and therefore where the, one of the driving forces behind the modern Zionist movement was that when the Holocaust happened, even the allies who were fighting the Nazis did not allow Jews into their countries, Jewish people didn't have a place to go, and their thing was that a nation that is stateless is power, a people that is stateless is powerless, and therefore the only way we can have power to be able to survive, if God forbid anything of any type of magnitude happens, therefore we need to have our own place. And only a sovereign people with its own country, government, and army can be able to survive. You know, it's talking about having its own army. They said after 1967, one of the news reporters came over to one of the generals and asked, what was so special about the 1967 war, the Six-Day War? So he says, oh, there was a natural and there was a supernatural. He says, what's the natural? He says, the natural was that God saved us. He says, what's the supernatural? That we have an army. The fact that Israel has an army today capable of defending themselves is a supernatural event. It's a miraculous event. But the modern Zionists believe that the only way that we would be able to, for the safety and security of the Jewish people's survival, the only thing we have is that we should have an army to defend ourselves if something happens. During the Holocaust, unfortunately, we didn't. And finally, the third argument is the right to our land is historical connection, as somebody mentioned here. We have it for thousands of years. And under Jewish sovereignty, ever since King David and King Solomon, the Jewish people have been in the land of Israel. For the last thousand years, there was... 3,000 years, Jewish people have lived in the land of Israel. Sometimes it was nearly a few hundred, and sometimes it was a few thousand. But there was always Jewish people in the land of Israel, regardless of what time, regardless of what empire, regardless of what government, there were always Jewish people in the land of Israel, and therefore the Jewish homeland has been ours for the past thousands of years. And even moreover, 
even Jewish people who are not in the land of Israel, Israel is always in our minds, hearts, and prayers. You can look in your prayer book. It's probably mentioned in every single prayer at least four times about the land of Israel. So those are the three common arguments. While these three arguments seem strong, valid, and the combination of them make for a very strong case and the legitimate reason of why the land of Israel should be ours, and along with side exposing the hypocrisy and the double standards of the Jew haters, it's still, and educating people about this, hopefully can make a difference, and at least some anti-Israel voices can be vanished, explained, or taught, but unfortunately, some of these anti-Israel voices are still existent. Yes? I think most of, well, many, I won't say most, many Jews who are anti-Semitic or self-hatred, they're very educated people. Okay. Are they, and that's what we're going to get to in a moment. So let's, so what do we see from here is, as you can see, there's, an, there's arguments that we can make for a very legitimate case why the land of Israel should be ours. And as you mentioned, many people who are anti-Israel, let's call it that for that, anti-Semite Israel, if you want, whatever you want to call it, maybe they have an education. And maybe they know about it. So what is their counter-arguments? And here are some of their counter-arguments. I'm going to see why not necessarily these arguments work. International law. So if you want to start, before we go to the counter-arguments, Here's an example of a very educated person, seemingly, and who was officially pro-Israel, and then she turned. Text number five. Prominent American critic of Israel by the name of Phyllis Bennis, who she seeks to dismantle Israel as a Jewish state, God forbid, but though she doesn't write it in this op-ed, but here's part of her op-ed. When I was a Jewish kid growing up in suburban Los Angeles, we thought being Jewish meant supporting Israel. There really wasn't a choice. If you identified as Jewish, and as most of my friends did, the religious education we got, the youth groups we joined, the summer camps we played, were all grounded on one thing. It wasn't God, it was Zionism. The political project of settling Jewish people in Israel. My own break with Zionism came in the mid-twenties after reading the letters of Zionism's founder, Theodore Herzl, imploring Cecil Rhodes, the leader of the British land theft in America, to... Uh, to support his work in Palestine, their projects were both something colonial, Herzl assured Rhodes. So over here you see Phyllis Bennis, who was raised in the atmosphere where Israel was a major point of emphasis, but why didn't it stay? What, is it, what happened? She read about Herzl. She saw he was this colonial. And other Jews have gone through the same process. Their belief in Israel was not something based of God. It was belief on some, whether international law, it's the Jews, it's something we have to do, it's part of what our synagogue does. We go on trips there, it's a nice place to tour. But a lot of it, a lot of them, I should say, are not impressed about these three claims for the following reasons. Because if you believe that Israel is in violation of human rights, then it doesn't matter to you about international law. So what if it's international law? The declaration of the international law was immoral. That's what their belief is. The battle for declaration from the beginning, if they're violating human rights, it shouldn't be given to them. Why should they get a nat the Palestinians and whatever may be their argument? Think about it. What they're saying is that the British had no moral right to give a plan to the Israel. What about for the survival of the Jewish people? The survival of the Jewish people, their argument is, why Israel? 
And in fact, unfortunately, in the beginning of Zionism, they weren't interested in Israel. Herzl was going to take Uganda. They were offered Alaska. They were offered, there was even a place in Russia. That's too cold. <laughs> there was a place. <laughs> but there were other places as well that they were offered. And the argument of the anti-Zionists, the anti-Israel, the anti-Jews, the anti-Semites is, if you need a place for Jewish survival, why Israel? We said, because it's the only place without oil, right? No, but <laughs> they found oil, you see? But the argument is, or even if a step further, some will even argue that if you're doing it for Jewish survival, if God forbid all the Jews are only in Israel, it's the biggest threat for the Jewish people. The biggest blessing for the Jewish people is that we're spread all over, so therefore they can get us when we're only in one place. Think about before the Six-Day War. A nuclear threat from Iran. What it can do to all the Jewish people. So why would you want one country and put all the Jewish people there? They're doing it to your favor. You see, they're saving the Jews by being anti-Israel. Well, one of the stronger arguments is that, uh, you know, it was a European problem. So why are you coming from Europe? And blaming the Arabs. And, and, and then kicking us out of our homeland, whether they were there or not. And why are you blaming us? Find a place in Europe where you... Uh, and, and Go back to Europe is their argument. From Europe. You've been treated bad for two that, isn't that one of their lines? Go back to Europe, yes. right? So that's what we said before, that's against international law, saying that we don't care just because of the Balfour Declaration. And also international law is Western law, it's colonial law. Correct, and they're against Western Balfour represents the British, can you get more colonial, colonial. So it's, it's these people who are against colonial Western type of behaviors. And finally, when you tell them what about the history, they'll say, well, what, who cares about the history? Many people have been in different lands and they moved on from there. The Egyptians are not in Egypt anymore. The Greeks are not in Greek. The Germans are not in Spain. And just because you were there, maybe the Dutch, their argument, maybe the Dutch should get back to New York. You know, whatever it may be. So then the Palestinians. And then the Palestinians. The problem with the Palestinians also went over there. But that's, again, don't mix. What do the guys say? Don't make my, mix my arguments with the facts or whatever. Don't let the facts get in the way. Yeah, no, yeah. Don't get my Don't let my, the facts get in the way of my argument. Well, I'll just say now all the Lebanese, Syrian, are now in, in France, <laughs> Germany. So, <laughs> so what I'm saying over here, let me get my point, is I'm not saying these counter-arguments are valid. And I'm not giving them legitimacy whatsoever. All I'm saying is, that a Jew that's not educated in the real reason of why we have the land of Israel can find legitimization in the shortcomings of our own cause. So therefore we need to go further. So So therefore what do we do? So where does it start? And where do we have to do the education? Oh, so let's find out. It's not the ca- so let's go a step further. Give them a trip to Israel. Oh, that's that's what they're doing these days. But let's see if it's going to help. And we're going to see we're going to see the Rebbe's point of view of how we can change the so perspective you know, what, here. What about, what about all those even religious cultures in Israel like the Nefilah that are against Israel? But that's a whole different type of anti-Israel. Uh, that's a different. I would say the Shalom Achshav people. Uh, we're dealing with the the, the religious Zionists. That's a whole different perspective, and that's they're, they're, they're they also have a problem. But that's that's a different type of. Uh, we should be happy we don't say that we want biblicalism. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go a step further. And here's an interesting story that happened once, and I remember this. Uh, I remember hearing it live. There was once somebody wrote a letter to the Rebbe, decrying about the fact that he walked into a Chabad synagogue. And he sees there was barely a minion there, whatever. 
And there's a guy sitting in the synagogue with his, I don't even think he says, I don't think he was wearing a talus, and he was reading a newspaper. And he said, how is it possible that a guy is sitting in the synagogue, everybody is praying, and he's reading a newspaper. And the Rebbe responded to the individual, and he said, instead of focusing how wrong it is for him to be sitting in the synagogue reading a newspaper, why don't you look at the fact that he even showed up to Shul? And this person has a soul, and because he has a soul, he received, he has this in the Shema, he, and, and had he received, and had he received the proper Jewish education, he would be in the Shul and participate. The only problem is he's called the Tinoka Shemnishbah. He's a child who is captured, meaning he didn't have a proper Jewish education. He didn't have the ability to see things from a different angle. He doesn't realize the value of prayer, maybe. But look at this, he showed up. Our step is now to educate him and give him the value of prayer. The same idea is also we can apply in our case. In our topic, there are many Jews that unfortunately who don't see Israel as a value. And therefore, that whether it's the BDS, or whether they're anti-Israel for human rights, whatever it may be, it's not because they have necessarily a hatred, at least. It's their uneducated upbringing of thinking of what it means, like this woman that we mentioned before, Phyllis Bennis. The way we understand her is, that she was brought up with a Judaism, that Judaism means tikkun olam, making the world, whatever that means. But it has nothing to do with God. In her own words, Zionism meant Judaism, but it has nothing with God. Israel has nothing to do with God. This was the mistake in Herzl's founding of concept of Zionism, if you want to call it. The mistake of the political Zionists is how they remove the God from it. And therefore, when a person feels that I can be, so to speak, anti-Zionist, because there's nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with being Jewish. It is the education, not in college, not in high school, but in primary school. Understanding and appreciating what it means to be Jewish, and what does it mean the land of Israel as Jewish people. Jewish education is to be comprehensive, to be able to teach them the entire picture that everything we have and everything we know has to be rooted within the faith of God. In the terms that we not only need to teach ourselves, but also need to teach the next generation of what it means to be a Jew, what is Judaism and what is Israel, how does it fit in it? And for starters, to present Israel the way it's presented from a Torah perspective. For example... In the beginning of the first Rashi, the first Rashi in the Torah, Rashi is the foremost commentator on the Torah. In the first verse, not according to Jonathan. <laughs> in the first <laughs> verse of the Torah, the first verse in the Torah says, In the beginning, God created the universe. Rashi says, Om Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak says, The Torah shouldn't have started with the creation of the universe. Why is the Torah talking about the creation of the universe? If the Torah is a book of laws, start with the first law given to the Jewish people. It's about the new month. Why does it start with history? Who cares about Adam, Eve? It's a book of laws. And the Torah comes along and he says, and the Torah says, and Rashi explains and says, text number six. 
Second paragraph. The solution is found in the verse he recounted the strength and the works of his people. He gave them the words of inheritance of his nations. In other words, if the nations of the world accuse the Jews with the claim, you are thieves for having conquered the land of the seven nations. The Jews shall reply, the entire world is God's. He created and granted it whomever he desired. It is his will to initially give to the seven nations and it is his will to subsequently remove it from them and give it to us. 1,000 years ago, Rashi quoted the teachings of the Medrash that was stated hundreds of years earlier. That the nations of the world are going to protest that the land of Israel is not the Jews. You can think he was living in modern times. And what happens all of a sudden? God says, you should know, I gave it to the Jews and therefore it's theirs. Where did God give it to the Jews? We see it in text number 7. God told Abraham, Raise your hand, raise your eyes and look around from where you are, the north, the south, the east and the west, all the land you see I will give to you and your offsprings. This promise was then reiterated to Isaac, then reiterated to Jacob, like in this week's Torah reading and the last week's Torah reading. And therefore, it is true that for the most thousands of years, the Jewish gift has been the land of Israel. So what do we do over here? The Jewish people have an eternal right to the land of Israel. So when we educate ourselves, when we teach somebody, what does it mean that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people? Not because the Balfour Declaration, not because historically we've been living there, not because it's a way of Jewish survival, because God said it's ours. That's the reason why the land of Israel is ours. Huh? One second. That we're looking at what number one education for ourselves to fortify ourselves and understand why the land of Israel belongs to ours. Not because Herzl, not because the Balfour Declaration, and not because of anybody else. It's because God said the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. What happens now? God gave us a gift, and God's gift is eternal. What this changes is a perspective in Jewish education. Which means if I start with the first block, meaning that the Torah and God are exciting, relevant, meaningful, modern, applicable in my day in life, then I don't have to worry about an Antiochus type of assimilation. I don't have to worry about an Israel education. The reason why I like Israel, the reason why we talk about Israel, the reason why Israel is so important, it's in our prayers, we mention it a hundred times a day, is because that's God's gift to us. It's because the Torah is relevant, because the Torah makes sense, the Torah is here. It's not something, an old age book that was kept in caves and only reserved for holy long people with beards. And therefore, automatically, you leave and all this anti-Israel activity fades off automatically. We need to know that the foundation of our support for the concept of Israel is a godly foundation. Not an intellectual foundation. Not an Hellenistic type of foundation. No, because there's one God for all and that God that you believe in gave it to the Jews. A devout Muslim has to accept the Torah as before he accepts the Quran. Okay, regardless, but over here we're talking about ourselves because the biggest problem is with this anti-Israel, anti-Semite type of thing is that Jews are in those ranks. When we Jews are strong about our position of what the land of Israel is, as a Jew, even a secular Jew, to know that the land of Israel was given to us because God gave it to us. And let's see it in the words of the Rebbe, text number 8, the Rebbe wrote this to the President of Israel. And the, ride, the, president, the Rebbe wrote this to the President of Israel, countering the arguments 
In fact, because in the Constitution of Israel, I'm um, not Constitution. What do they call it? The word, uh, Declaration of Independence in the of the of, of the state of Israel. They wrote those three arguments why the land of Israel is ours. And the Rebbe said any one of those three arguments can be argued with. But Rabbi, let me ask you a question. Yes. How do you define Israel? Because, because... Okay, you know what? Here's the issue from... I see what you're saying. Because if you define Israel as the land and Jews go there and it's Israel, that's fine. If you define Israel as a mess, Mashiach and creating Israel, then that's true. I would argue that the Jews had to throw off the yoke of the thought that we're only going there when the Mashiach comes. So, 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 so and, let's see. And, and, and you're, you're, you're touching on a very good subject. To, it was very necessary for Herzl and Matt Kraft to do what they did. So, so we're going to get to that in a moment because that goes back to his question about the religious anti-Zionist people. We are the, and this is where you can merge the crossroads between well, the two of them. Here's the thing. Let me just say this. As time goes on, the religious, most of them, We'll see, they're in, the, they're in the country, they will become part, and more and more, through the generations, will become part of the country. So let me, so let me tell you, they really were very so, so I'll tell you, so you, you have a, you, there's truth to what you're saying, in one extent, but not to the other extent. There are groups, put it this way, the real strong anti-Zionist religious are just getting stronger. Why? Because today they have more money than they had then. Those days, in the beginning of the state of Israel, everybody in Israel, whether you were anti-Zionist, for Zionist, you depended on the JNF and all the other uh, causes to be able to, to survive. Israel had no money. And not only that, the Jews in the diaspora had no money. They were, everybody was persecuted. Today, just to give you an example, one of the greatest anti-Zionistic whatever groups in, uh, that there exists is the Satmar community. They have billions of dollars that they give to organizations in Israel that don't take money from the government, in principle. They are so, so today they are, in a way, strong. on the other hand, Mizrahi, or Agudas Yisrael, who in Poland and in the time of Herzl were anti-Zionist because of what Herzl stood for, because of all the isms that existed in the time, the Hellenizing of Judaism, today are part of the Knesset and part of the government. So yes, as the state of Israel becomes more um, universal and more accepting and everything else and becomes more uh, open, integrated. integrated within society of the Jewish people and as today, in Jewish people today, in Israel today, majority of Jews living in Israel are religious. Majority of Jews living in Israel are religious. So the concepts and the ideas of um, and when I say religious, I don't mean uh, beards and you know and hats. I mean traditional. Let's call it like that or not atheists or secular or whatever, even though there's a big part, but still, the Labour Party, for example, who used to consist of anti-religious, the Tommy Lapid, from the 30, 40 years ago, don't exist anymore. They got, I think, four seats in the Knesset this time. They used to get 30, you know what I'm saying, just to show you the demographic. But Shas is traditional Jews, the Sephardic traditional Jews. Then you have a lot of other Jews that I'm saying, Mizrahi, uh, they're called, you know, whatever they call them, the Kippas Rugaz, you know, the, uh, so there's a whole big trend in Israel that's changing, you're right. But the people who are extremists just became more extreme, if I want to put it that way. But that way, we're going to get to in a moment of, well, let's just see the answer that the Rebbe gave, Shazar, Shazar. Zalman Shazar was an interesting character. He was actually a relative of the Rebbe. His name is Shneir Zalman Rubashov. 
He was named after the Alter Rebbe. He was a descendant of the Alter Rebbe. He, he was a very big Zionist. And he, he was the first religious president of Israel. They made a special Shabbos form for him. And how did he become religious? Just as a whole little side note here, the Rebbe sent a special individual, his name was Zusha Vodomovsky, to be able to go and meet him and bring him and get him and uh, encourage him to come closer to Judaism. He came to New York. Whenever he came to New York, he came to visit the Rebbe. And he once, when he, when he came the second time to New York, it was the first or second time to New York as the president of Israel. Once he came as an ambassador, once he came as the president. When he came as the president, he wanted to go visit the Rebbe. And the Israeli government told him, it's not respectful that you should go visit a rabbi. You're the president. The rabbi should come visit you. And he called up the Rebbe and he told the Rebbe, he wants to come visit, but this is what they're telling him. And the Rebbe told him, the, it's not me that you're coming to visit, you're coming to visit my father and the previous Rebbe, and you're going to come here and eventually in the middle of the night, 11 o'clock at night, a car came and picked him up, and he came, and you see pictures of the Rebbe welcoming him. They hu- you see literally the hug, embrace, they spoke for hours. The Rebbe gave him a Megillah case. They, ha- they had a very close friendship, and he, a lot of questions about Zionism versus, you know, all this type, the Rebbe's feelings about the land of Israel were very much expressed then. So here's one of those letters. Yeah, this was after, but he was not as president. He was an ambassador. Menachem Begin came as, as ambassador, as prime minister. But that's a whole separate relationship that you can talk hours about. Okay, I have received complaints but why I do not invoke the biblical land of Israel, the holy land. Why the, uh, text number, we are in text number eight as follows. I have received complaints. Why, I, why do I invoke the biblical land of Israel, the Holy Land, and the covenant with Abraham in connection with modern Israel? Why do I mix God into the picture? That was the complaint I had against the Rebbe. After all, they say those who fought for the creation of the state, those who led it, those who currently directed, and its authorized representatives, they all proclaim and take pains to emphasize that Israel is a state founded in 1948. And the Rebbe said, no, it's something that God gave us. My answer, put frankly, is that the narrative is false. No new entity was created in 1948. Rather, that was the year in which a larger part of the land of Israel was liberated. An entity established in 1948 based on the agreement of the authorization of the nations of the world has no strength or justification in the terms of the authentic response to the claim. You are thieves for having conquering lands belonging to others. A claim raised by the Arabs, the Vatican, the United Nations, and some Jews as well. This is why it is so crucial to underscore that it is a God-given homeland. Now, I do not delude myself into imagining, this answers your question, Sherman. I do not delude myself into imagining that these just and honest arguments will prevail in the United Nations or the Vatican. Nevertheless, transmitting this truth is critical for the morale of the Jewish youths. Living in the Holy Land, concluding the serving in the IDF for the Jewish American students or the Jewish youth of other countries as well. What the Rebbe is answering to Shazar is very crucial. He says, I'm not saying that if you'll stand in the United Nations and say, the land of Israel is mine because God gave it to me. It's going to work. I need to have the reason of the international or the Balfour declarations. I need the recognition of the United States and all the other stuff. The Rebbe recognizes the politics on the ground. But what the Rebbe is saying is to a soldier in the Israeli army, when he's going out there risking his life, if you're going to tell him because of the Balfour Declaration, tomorrow he's going to be part of Shalom Achshav, anti-Israel. But, that's, that's what but if you tell him it's because God gave it to you as a gift, then you have a morale, then you have a strength, and that's why you see today in the army, who are the people that are the biggest paratroopers? This boy, Leo K, was a paratrooper. 
uh, I think today the army over there is divided. Those that do not want to serve at all, and those that do. Those are okay. That's because you have a draft. But I'm talking about morale is built, and that's why you can see secular and Israeli soldiers today before they go out on the battlefront, are dancing animamin, are dancing uh, the, the concept of what Jerusalem is, a belief in God, putting on thrillin, even in the Six-Day War. Ariel Sharon himself, who was not a believer, was a secular Jew by all accounts, only took people in his battalion that put on thrillin that day. Why? Because he knew that at the end of the day, what's going to keep the soldiers going is their belief in God. For a political perspective, you're right. Political perspectives, we have to talk about Balfour declarations and then all the other stuff from a colonial or Western society. But from an action point of view. From an action point of view for a Jew. But for an action point of view for a Jew, the biggest people, let's even go back before 1945, in 1746, in 1772, there were groups of Hasidim, there were groups of Lithuanian scholars who risked their lives to go to the land of Israel. Why did they risk their lives to go to the land of Israel? There was no bound for declaration. Why did the people, why did Rothschild, why did, um, uh, what's his name, Moses Montefiore put land and was able to convince the British to be able to give agriculture to the Jews that were living in the land of Israel? Not just because they were supporting Jews. Because there was a sacred holiness state that believed in the land of Israel. That's what made their connection. Why did Jews and diaspora support Israel that they never saw it before? Because there are 16 Jews even then, going back, Hundreds of years already Jews are supporting Israel, not only today. Israel is one of the biggest uh, donations, so to speak, that people give to is the land of Israel. Why? Because there's a sacredness, there's a holiness to it. And when we educate people about the holiness that's in the land of Israel, what we have over here is we go a step further. We teach people and we educate them what it's all about. And let's look a step further. The question is, so then what's the deeper claim that the people have? And over here what the Rebbe is explaining is that there's a deeper claim that the non-Jews have to the Jewish people. On the surface, what are they saying? Why should the Jews have a land claim to the land of Israel? But what are they really deeply saying? Jewish people, you don't need materialistic things. You're all about spiritual. You're all about being spiritual. What do you need a land for? Why do you need a land to be able to go into the land of Israel? Because the question one can ask, if you think about it, why should the Torah even dignify the question, you're thieves? You're saying the entire Torah was changed, that God started from the beginning, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, only because the nations of the world are going to come and complain. Since when do we care what the nations of the world are going to say? Not only that, the very fact that you're entertaining the question gives legitimacy to the question. So what's, the, what's, the, what's going on over here? It is because, yes, seemingly on the surface there is a legitimacy. The Jewish people are the people of the book, they're spiritual characters. Why are then we changing the laws? Because every other nation is bound by geography. Every other nation, what makes you a Spaniard? That you grew up in Spain. What makes you an American? You grew up in America. What makes you an Argentinian or whatever it may be? Because you're in Argentina. Every other nation, how did they become a nation? was based on the fact of their geographic location. Who are the only ones that are not based by any type of geographic location? The Jews. <laughs> the Jews. The Jews, wherever they may be, a Jew in Argentina, a Jew in Australia, and a Jew in, in Morocco, all do the same exact Seder on Passover. A little bit of variation of what kind of kugel they eat. But they're all the same practice. They're all the same type of person. They all follow the same ideology. They're, not only that, 
They all support the same entities. When there was a Jew in Israel, or when a Jew is hurt and a Jew is celebrating, every Jew, regardless where they are, are interconnected and interrelated. That's what makes us a nation. A location doesn't make us a connection. In fact, for the most part of Judaism, we did not have a location. In fact, throughout most of our history, we were busy running from place to place. We didn't have a location. Thousands of years, Jews didn't live in Israel. Most of the Jews didn't live in Israel. Predominantly, in the last 200 years, whether it's in America, Europe, Russia, or wherever it may be. Even where were the greatest yeshivas? They weren't in Israel until the last 70 years. Why? Because the Jewish people, as we see in text number 9, our nation is only a nation through its Torah. And this, as we can see, is the historical perspective. Text number 10. Our, an objective, unprejudiced survey of the long history of our people will once bring the light of the reality that our survival as a nation was not as a result of material wealth or physical strength. Even during the most prosperous time under the united monarchy of King Solomon, the Jewish people, as well as his country, were materially insignificant by comparison with the contemporary world empires such as Egypt, Assyria, and Babylonia. Nor was it his active state or the control of the geographic homeland that secured our existence, as is evidence from the reality that the vast majority of our history, our people have lived in exile without a kingdom or without a homeland. Similarly, our Hebrew language did not play a vital role in our perpetuation. For even in biblical times, Aramaic supplanted the holy tongue and the spoken language. To the extent that part of the scripture, almost all of our Babylonian Talmud, the Zohar, other key works, were composed in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. Later in the times of Rabsati Gom, Imanides, most of the Jewish masses spoke Arabic, and further down the line, Yiddish and other languages, or Ladino and other places. It is also impossible to ascribe any common secular culture, contemporary scientific knowledge, as major preservation factor of our people, since such matters morph radically from one era to another. The only remaining consideration, which is the sole factor that has remained consistent throughout the ages, in all lands, and under the fullest of diversity of circumstances, is the Torah and mitzvahs that the Jews have observed in their daily life with great sacrifice. The unifying factor that we have, the Jewish people, the unifying factor that automatically comes to us is that we're bound by the Torah. And that's why, why does the Torah tell us that God gave us the land of Israel? Yes, God gave us a physical revelation, a physical land of Israel. Why do we need it? To be able to transform and to be able to take the godly and the physical and fuse it together. That is the job that God gave us. That is the task that we were given, and that's the reason why we have the land of Israel. The land of Israel and why so many mitzvot, so many commandments are connected only with the land of Israel. Because only there do we have that full ability to fuse the two. So why then does God pick and choose and say this is the beginning? Why does the whole Torah structure, so to speak? Because the legitimate part of the question is, yes, we're a nation of spirituality. So then why are we, we're not based on a geographical land. Why then is this yours? You're different than every other nation. But the answer is no. God who gave us the Torah also gave us a physical land that we confuse the two. Text number 11. So the argument is not that, that uh, there's a deed, so to speak, for uh, Abraham. We're not, the deed is also part of it. That's but it's because God gave us that gift and we are connected to the land regardless of where we are. Text number 11. The response is that. Here we go. Exactly what you were saying. The relationship between the Jewish people and the land of Israel is unique. It is not comparable to a relationship between any other nation and its homeland. 
Rather, the Jewish land is an integral part of the Jewish people's spiritual mission. The ultimate goal of the Jewish people's divine service is to turn this tangible world into a home for a godly revelation, to the point that God's holiness dwells specifically into the physical reality of this world. For this reason, the majority of Torah's commandments involve physical activities, so the fulfillment of the Torah mitzvahs install sanctity and tangible materials. It is for therefore critical to provide the Jews with the land of Israel, a physical land, and to provide them with an abundance of mitzvahs that can be performed exclusively with the land, for this express entire goal of the Jewish people and the purpose of the Torah, to conquer the physical dimension of the world and transform it into a home of God. And therefore, as we mentioned, this explains the function of why we have all these physical things. The Jewish people's mission is compatible with the physical world. That we, number one, we have to conquer the physical. Number two, as you can see, oh, and make it and transform it into a home for God. And what Israel is, is an extension of that job. So for this purpose, it matters less whether there were many or few Jews living in the land of Israel. The land of Israel is there for the same purpose. Of course, once, now going back to where we are today in modern times, once the land of Israel was given to us, given to us on a silver platter, so to speak, with the United Nations, and finally by recognized by the nations of the world, where we have now the power to exert control and lead it in a way in accordance with the Torah and with the mission of infusing in every single fabric and every single part of the society within the land of Israel, how much more so and how much more we can do. And therefore, therefore, the Torah was happy to, so to speak, change the order and open with the story of creation, answering the question, per se, seemingly in the abstract, if we're spiritual, what are we physical, to show us that it's all part of our divine mission. There was a very well-known prophet, um, poet, what did I say, prophet? Very well-known poet was known as Rabbi Yehuda Levi. Most of the poems that are written in the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur uh, uh, service were written by him. And he put, there we go, Jewish space. And he put it this way. He had a very famous saying. I think there's even a Sephardic song to it. Libi ba Mizrach. My heart is in the east. He used to say, Libi ba Mizrach, my heart is in the east, and I am at the ends of the west. He was referring to the fact that even though he was physically in Spain, his mind, his heart, and the prayers were always in the land of Israel. We too can develop this type of sentiment, this type of behavior, and this type of understanding, A, within ourselves and the people we meet. And as you were talking about before, the moment a person starts going on a diatribe against Israel, it is because even a Jew who is anti-Israel, God forbid, it is because that feeling, that notion, that connection is what's missing. And therefore, by providing, starting from when a child is a rich Jewish education, explaining to them and understanding and fostering a love of God. Because when a person is sometimes saying something negative as a Jew, it's because it's bothering them. They have an ashama. Like that guy with the newspaper, he's coming to shul, but he doesn't know which is the prayer book. He needs to be educated. And therefore, as we need to show and develop an appreciation for the Torah, for the appreciation for what the land of Israel is in its beauty and its connection with the Torah. Just last year, there was an unbelievable story. I don't know if you saw this. There was an Israeli singer. There was an Israeli singer. I think we're past the time, right? <laughs> That's what happens when we go over time. <laughs> There was an Israeli singer, I think his name was Aviv Geffen. You heard of him? As a young kid, 
He was an atheist, secular, anti-religious, anti-God, anti huh? Just with over Corona. When they were started blaming Corona on religious people and everything else, he started, and also I guess he had time to reflect or whatever it was, he started reflecting on his Judaism and everything else. I think it's more because he was living in London for a while. No, it was while he was in Israel. He no, says this. Oh, while he was anti. Before oh. he was in London, he was anti. After he moved to London, came back, then. I don't know, this is, he says, I just heard him yesterday, he gave a talk. Actually, it's after his son was born. So yesterday he gave a talk. I heard him give a talk with his yarmulke ready. He's starting to put on tefillin and everything else. And he says in his talk, it was his appreciation that he saw. why it was, it was, The way it started initially was he actually was a singer. And he made a song during Corona in, uh, that people shouldn't attack the religious people and how we're all one nation. When he made that song, a singer from America reached out to him. from Frida Chabad Chassid who's also a singer and a big popular in Israel, and, and thanked him for making the song, and they collaborated together and making other songs together, and they had a few concerts together in Israel where he sang songs, Hasidic songs, and he sang one of his songs and the song together, and the concept was, and yesterday he spoke actually in one of the Chabad houses in Israel, and he said, when I saw that the land of Israel and the Jewish people, it's not just a nation, but there's God to it, all of a sudden I realize there's no difference between us. It's when all of a sudden we think, when we look at it as a secular nation, and we look at it as something, okay, we're just okay, there's, there's Lebanon, there's Jordan, there's Israel. But when we look at the uniqueness of the Jewish people, that we're not just a nation, but as we mentioned, a nation that's connected with God, a nation where the land of Israel is because God gave it to us as a gift, and our connection is regardless where we live in the world. We have a connection with that place, even if we've never seen there and even if we've never been there. And because we pray for it, because God gave it to us, that automatically makes it so much more precious and different that our education and thinking towards it, regardless of our flaws, we can come to appreciate what it is. And that will automatically take away all the anti-Israel that exists there. And with the coming of Moshiach, we'll all be able to come together to the land of Israel, appreciate its glory, realize its greatness, that the whole world would come to identify what the beauty of the land of Israel is. So, whether Jews will be proud of Israel, we're working towards fusing our flaws, trying to get there eventually. So my question is, I enjoy what we're learning, and I'm learning a lot that I certainly didn't know before. But how does one pull in and educate, whether it's people my age or younger? Talk about the college kids on campus. How do you entice them? So you know the story about the guy who said, first I thought I can fix the world, then I thought I can fix my country, then I thought I can't do that, I can fix my state and my city. We start with ourselves. When we educate ourselves, and we are strong in our beliefs, it automatically has a ripple effect to the people around us. I mean, I take the book home and I talk about it specifically. You know, so when we, so that's a step. So that's where you go. And that person's going to speak to their friend. And that person, there's no other way that we can, no sign, no anti-BDS. I mean, we have organizations that do that. You have APAC and all the other wonderful organizations that are fighting the BDS movement. And that's wonderful. That's the political as, you know, like what Herzl had to do in his time, if you want to call it. But the real concrete messages of how we're going to change, and that's going to help even for the religious and there's uh, anti-Zionists. 
is that if we look at the land of Israel, not because of the political persuasions, not because if you understand that the land of Israel is a gift given to the Jews and our connection is based because of God, then how can I stand with Iran and how can I stand with anybody, whether I'm religious or not, whether I believe that it shouldn't be ours, a government or not, doesn't make a difference who the government is. If it's a Jewish government or not, for a moment, I'm saying the fact that we have a government and we can now take the land of Israel and utilize it for the precepts of Torah and mitzvahs, that's the greatest pleasure. Then what do you mean you want Iran, the Palestinian government? That's the answer that you would give. You asked me, the, what would you answer to religious anti-Zionists? That if the purpose of why God gave us the land of Israel is that we should be able to observe and do the commandments in the land, if it's not a religious Jewish government, how can I do it? I wouldn't be able to keep Shemitah, I wouldn't be able to do Torah, I wouldn't be able to do any of those mitzvot. I'll be back into the time, like in the in the second in the nineteenth century. They don't believe in any government. What? They don't no, they want a Palestinian. They just don't want a Jewish government. But regardless of what, what I'm saying is the same idea, the same logic that I believe that my connection to the land is a God-given gift, and the purpose is for me to transform it and do the mitzvot there. Then the more I have a Jewish government, the more I have that ability, and that's why the Rebbe was so strong not to give away even one piece of land. Because that means I'm giving away a, God, a gift, an eternal gift that God gave me. Who gives you the right to give it away? Okay, I don't want to go too far because we're already running over time. So let's just... Uh, no, let's just... My granddaughter using the phone. Yeah, I'm, let's just review. Because it started already. ...from the most prestigious authority of any given era. At present, this authority is the pursuit of human rights. Consequently, Many of today's anti-Semites focus overwhelmingly on Israel and accuse it of being the ultimate violator of human rights. Two, when Israel is A, demonized, or B, judged with a double standard, or C, when Israel's existence is delegitimized, that challenge exposes itself as an expression of anti-Semitism. When anti-Semites refrain from asserting that they seek to annihilate Jewry, but merely take issue with specific Jewish beliefs and practices, claiming them to be barbaric, Jews can be tempted to join the fight against their fellow Jews, believing that they are saving Jews rather than hurting them. Four, there are several arguments for why Jews need and have a right to Israel. Most crucial is the Torah's oft-reiterated reminder that God gave Jews the land of Israel as an eternal inheritance. The deeper our appreciation of this reality, and the more we educate the next generation about its implications, the more support we will nourish toward the land of Israel. Such an approach can desirably influence the wider audience, but the most vital audience is our Jewish brothers and sisters. To support Torah and God-based reason, it is necessary to create an environment that cherishes the Torah and nurtures faith. It is therefore critical to...